2: Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Samuel Taylor Coleridge penned those words in his 18th century poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. By contrast, in today's America, we'd like to think that there's plenty of drinking water everywhere for everyone. The reality, however, is drastically different in one corner of the desert southwest, as we'll be showing you in our cover story. For generations of Navajo people, high in this desert landscape, water has always been sacred. In this day and age, you wouldn't think running water would be a luxury. But here,
3: it is. We've looked at the global water crisis as a foreign problem for such a long time, and it seemed so big and unassailable, and here it is right in our backyard. It's an American problem.
2: Ahead on Sunday morning, a life without water. And the people Coming to the rescue. Then and now is a story from Barry Peterson, all about a nature photographer who's been looking for that Rocky Mountain High.
4: John Fielder has hiked, climbed, and crawled to nearly every corner of Colorado's national parks. He is considered by many to be the state's premier nature photographer.
5: I've been to the park a hundred times in the last 40 years, and uh, it gets better, actually, each time that I come here.
4: Later on Sunday morning, capturing nature's majesty on film and a project a hundred years in the making. Anna Werner
2: introduces us to a sculptor who truly knows how to make money. Steve Hartman finds moments of zen while weeding his very own lawn and more.
3: You'd probably start to hit water here at about 600 feet. Next, in search
2: of water. And later,
6: seeing double. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: Water, water, everywhere. It's a pretty popular saying but without a drop of truth for some folks in one beautiful part of our country. We saw firsthand how they struggle to get by when we traveled there for our Sunday morning cover story. It's easy to miss this corner of the Navajo Nation, just 100 miles west of Albuquerque. Most things pass the reservation right by, including progress. Many of the roads here are unpaved. Electricity is spotty. Unemployment in the area hovers near 70%. But perhaps most shocking of all, an estimated 40% of the people who live here don't have access to running water. And the sink, what does the sink do?
1: We don't use the sink because there's no running water. It's just there. Yeah.
2: Loretta Smith and her husband share this small mobile home with their disabled granddaughter, Brianna. Seven? That's how old? With no indoor plumbing, what little water the family has inside is carried in, bucket by bucket, stored in plastic barrels outside. Do you feel sort of forgotten out here? Yes, for sure, yeah. The area's main source of drinking water is miles away, in the parking lot of the St. Bonaventure Indian Mission, in the town of Thiru, New Mexico. Okay. Getting water here, can mean a 100-mile round trip for some families. And the mission's office manager, Cindy Howe, says many don't even have access to a car. What happens when they run out of water?
7: If they don't have any water, it's just they don't have any water. And I just, sometimes I get so frustrated, why is it, why can't people get water?
2: (laughs) And that's where Darlene Arviso comes in.
7: They call her the water lady.
2: Every day, Darlene loads up her big yellow tanker truck and takes to the roads to deliver something most of us take for granted.
7: When I see her coming, I like, get, yes, yes, water.
2: <laughs> Darlene is Navajo, born and raised right here on the reservation. Pretty much know everybody, right? Now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's used to carrying precious cargo, She's been driving the school bus on the reservation for years but her water route is a job that she considers almost sacred
1: i'm proud of what i'm doing for my people and i love my job so do you yes i do
2: what do you love about it so much
1: like i go out every day to meet different families yeah
2: there are 250 homes on her route and she can only get to each family once a month And sometimes not even then, if the mud gets too thick. Which is why when she does make it, it's often treated like a celebration. (laughs) (laughs) Nina Garcia has never had a day with running water in her life. Unlike the rest of us who use about 100 gallons of water a day, Nina has been getting by on only about 7 gallons. That's a hard truth that Darlene has a hard time watching.
1: Sometimes I wish I could do more. How do they make it last so long? Well, they just have to stretch out their water and yeah.
3: I say this, you know, as having been raised Catholic with full knowledge of what I'm saying, (laughs) Darlene (laughs) Arviso is a living saint.
2: The fact that this man, George McGraw, is on this reservation at all is a testament to just how dire the Navajo situation is. Do you see yourself? He runs a nonprofit called Dig Deep. He normally works in developing countries, digging wells in places like South Sudan, Kashmir, and Cameroon. But now, the problem is right in his
3: backyard. I really had no concept that this kind of material poverty existed in the U.S. But it does. The question is,
0: why? It should be regarded as a national embarrassment.
2: We took that question to Dan McCool political science professor at the University of Utah, who studied Indian water rights
0: for the last 40 years.
2: How is this possible in this day and age that Americans don't have running water?
0: American Indians in Arizona and New Mexico were not allowed to vote until 1948. They did not have a voice. They weren't in line politically when the money, the funding, the projects, and the water was being allocated.
2: So the only source of water left for the Navajo is groundwater lying deep beneath the hard rock of the Continental Divide.
3: We took this project to hydrogeologists, to engineers, to construction specialists all over the country, even here in the Southwest. And everyone said, well, this is one of the most challenging projects we've ever seen. Even if they can find water, it might not be drinkable. You'd probably start to hit water here at about 600 feet, but the water you'd get out would be laced with uranium. That's from years
2: of mining on the reservation during World War II. Older water wells dot the landscape. Sarah Begay, who's lived on the reservation all her life, took us to this one. It's still pumping water, but few dare drink from it anymore.
7: For years, I mean, maybe a good 20, 30 years. It was fine. It was fine.
2: And then what happened?
7: Uh, People started getting
3: sick. So dig deep must dig deeper, and the clock is ticking running out of water by the middle of the month is is a painful experience and most of them do yeah most of them still do
5: good morning morning. morning.
3: lindsay johnson
2: makes sure she doesn't run out she has a system to conserve every drop darlene delivers what would you do without her i don't know (laughs) aside from her morning coffee mug she uses only paper plates and cups so she doesn't have to wash dishes Like her fellow Navajos, Lindsay shares her home with as many as eight other people. When it comes to washing hair, two, maybe three of them will all use the same water. Lindsay's 16-year-old granddaughter, Yvonne, says almost everyone here finds ways to cope without running water, but few want to talk about it.
7: People don't share their stories.
6: Yeah. I don't either. You
2: don't tell them? Because why?
6: It's like, it's kind of embarrassing. It's just hard.
2: So who's to blame
0: for this? The counties and the states say, oh, it's the federal responsibility. And the feds say, well, we're broke. It's the states and the counties' responsibility.
2: It's a lot of finger pointing.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of passing the buck.
2: And so the Navajo wait.
3: Has Darlene kept you updated on everything going on with the well,
2: the new one? George's dig deep well is coming along, but it will cost close to $500,000 to complete. And all of it is funded by donations. But even if the well gets up and pumping, Darlene still won't be out of a job. A new well doesn't mean homes will suddenly have new plumbing. What it means is clean water will be more readily accessible. The first step. The next will be building gravity fed storage tanks like these that could be hooked up to faucets inside. But that's several years and probably countless
3: fundraisers away. Things are not simple here. But every time we have even the smallest success in this project those little moments are so tremendously impactful for me. I think I'm really starting to live for this project. It's 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 ours.
2: Do you think you'll ever see a day where everyone here has water?
1: I just hope so. (laughs) I just pray and that they'll have running water, yeah.
2: A simple wish the Navajo people hope won't just be a drop in an already empty bucket. Ahead, all together now,
6: To Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now,
2: a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, August 16th, 1987. 28 years ago today, a day for worldwide meditation, music, and dance. For that was the day of the so-called harmonic convergence. Good afternoon. It was the brainchild of art historian Jose Arguez, who said the convergence was based on the ancient Mayan calendar and on a relatively rare alignment of the planets. And if we play our cards, our flutes, and our wind chimes right, we could be in for a new age of peace and love. CBS News correspondent David Browning had set the stage for the convergence a few days before finding enthusiastic volunteers for the ceremonies to come.
6: We have to do something, and we have a responsibility to change the consciousness on the planet. One day I just had a calling, an inner guidance, saying that I had to go to Mount Shasta.
7: Not that
2: everyone around California's Mount Shasta was eager for the convergers to converge.
6: I don't want them up here. I mean, they go up on the mountain, No will tell them what they're going to do up there.
2: As for Convergence creator Jose Arguelles... Well, his expectations were literally out of this world. There may be UFO sightings or there may not be, but there will definitely be some type of uh, communications of of an extraterrestrial nature. As it happened, there were no confirmed UFO sightings that day, that we know of anyway. Still, many thousands of celebrants were spotted at Convergence venues all around the nation and the world, ranging from Stonehenge to the pyramids of Egypt, to New York City's Central Park. A worldwide convergence of people of goodwill and good cheer.
5: Big Thompson River in the foreground. Then, uh, and now,
0: next.
6: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: The Colorado Rockies, then and now. Part of one photographer's personal mission. And in this centennial year of Rocky Mountain National Park, Barry Peterson found him, naturally, Hard at work.
4: In a crowded world of honking horns and cubicle offices, nature can be heart-stopping. So think how lucky John Fielder is, perhaps Colorado's premier nature photographer. And you could say a place like this, Rocky Mountain National Park, is his office. Do you still come to a place like this and just take a deep breath and... Be a little bit in awe of all of this
5: i never get tired of being in places like this it's my medicine i've been to the park a hundred times in the last 40 years and uh, it gets better actually each time that i come here
4: over the last 40 years his llamas packed with camera gear he has hiked or climbed or crawled looking for the next perfect shot capturing nature's majesty or man's footprint a fence made of aspen trees, a ranch nestled deep in a valley.
5: When I'm alone, I think I can experience to a deeper degree the sensuousness of nature, not just these views, but again, the sounds and the smells, the taste, the touch of these grasses. Aspiring photographers...
7: It's just a treat to be able to
6: spend an afternoon with John Fielder. He's Colorado's photographer.
4: ...flock to his workshops
6: because uh, John Fielder's work is amazing, it's inspirational, and it can speak to anyone in any corner of the United States or the world.
4: Or come to his gallery, where the lesson is that you
5: cannot hurry
4: the pursuit of beauty.
5: We call it the North Fork of the Gunnison Country.
4: Mm -hmm. And it's stunning.
5: This took me about a dozen trips to get this photo, so every year I would go to this location, look at the quality of the aspen trees, It was never right. And finally, after 12 visits, I finally got it at its perfect moment.
4: So this is a 12 years in the making picture. Yeah. But one of his most famous projects was actually a century in the making. Fielder found a kindred soul, photographer William H. Jackson. With his 350 pounds of gear, he was hired by the federal government to photograph his way across the state in the 1870s. Jackson shot 10,000 pictures of Colorado, many archived at Denver's History Colorado Center. Fielder chose 300 and went hunting for the same spots. Some were easy, like Aspen in its early prospector heyday, and now actually less populated a century later. Or railroad tracks, now back to nature.
5: Just like this. this is the sweet spot that
4: you finally found. Exactly. But sometimes he needed patience, strong legs, and a precise sense of geography to find the more remote areas. It created a book that became a bestseller. So just tell me, how did you find this place? What were your landmarks? Mm-hmm.
5: Well, first clue was Big Thompson River in the mm-hmm. uh, foreground. Mm-hmm. Uh, second clue was Mount Ypsilon, that mountain right there in the background slightly disguised by that ponderosa pine here. So, yeah, and then just moving around until I got things to line up. But the decades have changed, Fielder. He
4: still finds calm here, but now apprehension.
5: Well, nature is challenged more than ever these days. We've got a warming planet. We soon will have 9 billion people on the planet visiting places like this. Um, We need to protect it
4: that's what drove President Lyndon Johnson to sign the Wilderness Act 50 years ago protecting America's outdoors Colorado, Rocky High. to celebrate that anniversary fielder hit the road for a year showing his pictures selling his books working up to this night matching John the photographer with that other Colorado John John Denver his music played by the John Adams band Rocky it filled a downtown Denver concert hall, the wonder of nature, with a warning.
5: Nature is being lost very quickly because of climate change, and I want to be a part of the community of people that truly care about four billion years of the evolution of life on Earth. And one of the best ways to share with people how special this is and why it needs to be protected forever is through photography.
7: To come. How much artistic freedom do you have in terms of
6: designing the coins? Surprisingly
2: a lot. A matter of money.
6: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The U.S.
2: Mint has been honoring our nation's first spouses. The latest to get a commemorative gold coin is Mamie Eisenhower. From stamping medals to making money, mint designers are hard at work thinking small, as Anna Warner now shows us.
7: In this fast-paced world obsessed with earning money and spending it, it's understandable why you might not take a minute to examine your spare change. But if you did, you might find those coins are miniature works of art. There's art in money. There is. There's not maybe money and art, but there's art in money.
8: That's a good comment. I like that. Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> Don Everhart should know. He's the lead sculptor for the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. People talk all the time about making money, but you actually make money.
8: Right, you could say that.
7: Everhart's designs range from the state quarters we use every day to medals presented to world leaders. It's a pretty unique job.
8: It's very unique. There's only seven of us in this country that do what I do, and we're all in this building.
7: How many designs do you think you've come up with?
8: It's got to be in the thousands, literally.
7: Most coin designers use computers, but not Everhart. For him, each design starts with a lump of clay. And so how much depth do you get on that?
8: I think we did this at 70 or 80 thousandths of an inch.
7: 80 thousandths of an yeah, inch is what you... like a 16th of an inch. That's what you get to work
8: with. Yeah, on this one we do.
7: Not a lot of space. It's
8: not a lot, no. no. <laughs>
7: After he's put in his two cents' worth, his design goes before two federal
8: committees. We don't have to abide by what they say, but we take what their recommendations are very seriously.
7: How much artistic freedom do you have in terms of designing the coins? Surprisingly
8: a lot. Because the committees like to see new, refreshing angles because we've done so many different things on coins that they want to see something that's indicative of the time we live.
7: All the way back in 1792, our founding fathers knew... Their new democracy couldn't be truly independent without its own currency. And so the Mint was born, the first federal building erected under the new Constitution. The Mint has perfected its practice since then. One machine uses lasers to trace Everhart's sculptures. It notes every nook and cranny so it can shrink the image down to scale. Next, they make a stamp. Using anywhere between 40 and 60 tons of force, that stamp strikes blank pieces of metal, making coins. You wanna press one? Yeah, press one, sure. Hold, in there. hold
8: it, hold it. Hold it.
7: <laughs> What'd I do wrong? I did it wrong! That's okay. This is what happens when you let TV talent do this. I broke the machine. But I got the hang of it. Now turn. Victory! <laughs> I can now officially say that I have made money in this job. Thank you. <laughs> You're the U.S. Mint turns out $2.7 million in coins every day, and thousands of them could be Don Everhart's designs, which could be a pretty heavy thought for a unique artist. So, how do you wrap your head around the fact that millions of people have seen your work?
8: Well, millions of people have seen it, but I don't think they know who Don Everhart is. Even if they look at the little tiny initials on it.
7: Wait, there are initials on it?
8: Yes. On, on every coin or metal that I've done since I've been here, i put initials on.
7: So we just have to look for them. Look
8: for a little DE, and usually in the lower right-hand corner.
7: And then we'll know, hey, Don did that coin.
8: That's right.
0: Here we go.
7: Just a head?
8: Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: Steve Hartman's wheel calling.
6: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So how does Steve
2: Hartman's garden grow? Not with silver bells and cockle shells, that's for sure. We join him not on the road, but in the weeds.
9: I have a confession to make. Even though I only do this at my place in upstate New York, after the kids are in bed. The fact is, I have a weed addiction. Here we go. I just can't stop pulling the things. Oh, yeah. Mugwort, Canada thistle, and leafy goldenrod are some of my favorites. That's the stuff. I realized the extent of my addiction only recently, after my cameraman interviewed my wife, Andrea, about it.
6: He goes out at 7 o'clock at night and weeds until dark. I mean, sometimes he's out there past dark.
9: And her point is?
6: You know, it's not weeding a garden, it's weeding five acres.
9: Four and a half, technically. See, a few years ago, I had this idea to turn this weedy hillside into a beautiful prairie full of native wildflowers and grasses. I contacted this man who would eventually become my dealer. We started with prairie plants. Neil DeBall owns the Prairie Nursery in Westfield, Wisconsin. He got me hooked on weeds through gateway plants like purple coneflower, compass plant, and smooth aster. We're trying to get you hooked. Yes, my product is highly addictive. (laughs) It's called love of nature. But here's the problem. Before you see those flowers in the magazine, you often need to spend a great deal of time weeding a new prairie meadow. And Neil made no mention of how addicting that can be. I would come out here every night and dread it, and then a switch flipped, and I started coming out here and loving it. Weeding can induce a meditative state. And that is therapy for all of us in this crazy world that we live in, when you can just tune everything out and focus on one single-minded purpose. Of course, the downside to a laser focus like that is that sometimes the rest of the world becomes a blur. For example, I'm told the prairie actually looks pretty nice now, but honestly, I can't see the flowers through the weeds. I know there are still a lot of them lurking in here, and that's okay. I mean, what else am I going to do at this point? Just give up on the whole project? It would. Andrea?
6: I could live without
9: it. You want your husband back? Don't I
6: know. <laughs> I don't know if I could live with how defeated my husband would feel if we gave it up.
9: I thought that was sweet. I'm going to take her to dinner. After the first frost, of course.
2: I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.